This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. In the perennial battle between the nerds and the jocks, it seems like the nerds may have won. At the very least, the nerds have won an enormous influence over our lives. The Zuckerbergs, the Musks. The nerd archetype was once a lovable underdog, someone brilliant, someone worth rooting for. But the Zuckerbergs and Musks of the world aren't exactly well-liked today. So the question becomes, did nerds win the culture war and are they the villains now? These were all fantasies that a middle schooler would sketch in a loose leaf notebook and then forget about and outgrow. But once you get enough power and wealth, if you haven't outgrown them, then returning to them, that is a new idea. And you don't need to go to billionaires uh, to find it. Ian Bogost, author and game designer, joins us in just a moment. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. We are, as a society, now past the point where the nerd gets the girl, and that in and of itself is the happy ending. Like, that's enough. And look, that's probably a good thing. It's enough of a cliche, for one thing. And our understandings of romance and gender and heroism have all evolved since those days of the Brat Pack. But I want you to spend just a moment and think about the favorite lovable nerds and geeks from current pop culture. Your Sheldons, your Urkels, your Chucks. Ask yourself, do these guys really exist in 2023? And if they do, if they did, would you want to hang out with them? If society's most prominent, real nerds are any indication, the answer may be no. Ian Bogost is an author and video game designer, and he joins us now. Welcome. It's great to be here. So instead of me speaking for you, we reached out to you because you wrote a piece in The Atlantic that was called The Nerds Are the Bullies Now, which we sort of summed up as like, um, maybe we shouldn't be rooting for the nerds anymore. Is that kind of a, a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, the, the, nerds, the nerds won the culture war uh, in a way. And uh, they were supposed to rescue us from the bad vibes uh, of, of a jock life or of, you know, hedge funder life or whatever it was. And uh, instead, they kind of turned out to be just as bad, if not worse, than all the bullies we were accustomed to. You know, we also found this uh, um, op-ed in The New York Times that's written by uh, Jennifer Wright. And her headline was, Jocks Rule, Nerds Drool. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I, I wondered, I, I imagined the two of you sitting over coffee because she, um, she was pointing out that there's so many stories coming out of the tech world at this point, allegations of sexual harassment, all these stories of mi- misogyny, um, just so many upsetting stories coming out of, uh, you know, tech companies, uh, even the private lives of yeah. many of these so-called tech geniuses. That it sounds like exactly the sort of thing that you are pointing out in your op-ed. But why, at this point, are the nerds no longer the heroes, do you think? Yeah, well, um, they gained too much wealth and power. That would be the simple answer. If memory serves, that um, Jennifer Wright piece was maybe from, I don't know, five years ago or so. So it's, it's this Yeah, been, I think it was like is, 2018. Yeah, I'm not looking been, at it, but yeah. Um, this has been going on for a little while now. And you might say, uh, anytime anyone uh, accrues a power through wealth or, or through influence or both, 
that they can't help but uh, abuse it, that there's sort of no hope that the heroes, the underdogs, remain uh, a heroes. And that would be one way of, of looking at the problem, that um, you know we used to hold up uh, nerds, geeks, whatever you wanted to call them, as uh, a defense against hegemony, right, against a kind of established power structure in which the finance bros or the jocks um, or the fraternity guys or whoever it was, right, were the uh, bad examples of of behavior and of aspiration. And you're supposed to use your brain instead and be smart. um, And science and knowledge and technology uh, would win out over over brawn and, and, and might. That was a story that we used to tell ourselves. And maybe that story was just wrong. It was never about brains versus brawn. It's just a matter of who has power, who, who controls the conversation, but also who has the resources uh, with which to rule, not just politically, but, but culturally. Okay. So, I mean, let me start first with the gendered portion of this, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it, we're cl- it's clearly gendered. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, as many of the the pieces that I read, and there are a lot of them, um, pointing out sort of this phenomenon about mean nerds. Yeah. Um, they always use as examples guys. Yeah. Uh, e- Elon Musk, Zuck, you know, all of them. Um, and we aren't talking about mostly the the females here. So what do you make of this idea that the nerds we're mostly talking about are, are male? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the gendered conflict uh, of, of power is one of legend in a way. You know, and you hearken back to these um, either kind of mid-century portrayals or like, you know, 1980s uh, John Hughes-style representations of American, you know, culture. And gender roles are, um, are fixed. They're very, very strongly delineated. And the, uh, the conflict between men and men is often fought over women, right? Um, and it's assumes, right, that what it means to be in power is to be, is to be male and in power. So there's absolutely no question that we still live under this, you know, despite all the progress that the gender equity might have made, that we still live under an assumption or a reality in which um, uh, male dominance uh, not only remains strong, but also is driving the stories we, we tell ourselves about about what's possible. And, you know, there is a there is another side to this conversation, which is about the idea that women um, might overtake the male presence, right, in whether it's in, in the technology world or elsewhere and bring an alternative to the sort of, you know, bad sentiments of masculine identity. You know, that conversation is also ongoing. But nevertheless, this, uh, this is like very, very binary gender split, especially when we're talking about a power in industry uh, and power in government remains uh, strong, right? We still haven't shaken that off. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to um, sort of wrap my head around um, the, the nastiness of nerds. I mean, I guess because we're using as examples these really famous nerds. And yeah, I know you're talking about, to, to you, what we're really talking about is power. Mm-hmm. So is, 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 is what you're really saying is that sort of age-old wisdom that power corrupts? <laughs> is, that, is that really what we're saying? I mean, it's funny. If you go back and you look at the fantasy of the, the nerd underdog, like overcoming the hegemonic jock figure, you know? And I'm thinking of like, especially in cinema, 
uh, of the of the 1980s you know the the movies i i grew up with and that were prominent at the time that the computing and computing geekery was on the rise revenge of the nerds or real genius or, or even like back to the future in a certain way which has this throwback to to the mid-century right um it's not as though the behavior of anyone was good was worth modeling all sorts of weird perverse relationships especially between men and women you know the very idea that what makes you successful is winning over uh, the girl in the first place and that that's a a, a virtue to pursue or that no matter what you do to get there um is justified the the idea behind overcoming power you know by by replacing it with the underdog figure whether that's the nerd or someone else was probably always a bad idea it was always a a broken notion but it was nevertheless um a driver of of cultural uh, imagination and so then when the nerds started to win the battle uh for a cultural appeal and, and the idea of having a like a computer company or a technology business or just being pro you know having prowess at machinery uh was no longer a weird thing to do no longer meant that you were stuck inside your head or your basement. Um, it appeared as though that fantasy was um, was becoming realized, and, and we sort of forgot. I think about, of course, the pop culture representations are just representations. You know, they're just stories, but they were the stories we told ourselves uh, about a, a certain kind of fantasy of of flipping the bit on uh, on power, not just power, but also uh, value. You know what? what kind of figure you would want to be or surround yourself with or, 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 or aspire toward. And so, you know, the, the you could say, well, power just always corrupts, um, and maybe that's accurate, but that doesn't get you very far. That's not a terribly uh, insightful position uh, to land on because we had uh, imagined that a very specific kind of power uh, inversion, that sort of brain bronze, uh, brains brawn dyad, that once that flipped, that something something would change, you know, that we would no longer be fighting with one another, um, uh, that somehow reason uh, would overtake um, snap judgment, and you know, that kind of didn't that kind of didn't <laughs> kind of didn't happen, uh, and we've never really come to terms with the fact that it didn't, uh, and now that's sort of the job we have to carry out is to understand well, were we wrong? Um, and in what ways were we wrong and what what kind of new fantasies or new desires um, do we want to build uh, around uh, aspiration for, for ourselves for uh, for the the generation of of people that come after us and and you know it's it's hard to reinvent a, a whole culture's worth of values overnight I mean I feel like as as a as a female I sort of feel left out of this whole thing right <laughs> right. right like this was never about me and yeah. I, I think of that movie revenge of the nerds with so which so casually you know includes a rape as sort of a victory right terrible right <laughs> yeah, yeah just the worst ever Awful. like this yeah just the worst but like this whole idea that there's this this epic battle between the the idea of masculinity you know the the difference you know the battle between thomas jefferson mm -hmm. and and attila the hun right like uh, 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 where i fit into this is right. is clearly just as the spoils of war um but this idea that <laughs> either one of them are are the bad guys to me sort of leaves out the idea that we <laughs> shouldn't be idolizing anybody 
yeah. no one is the hero. Right. Yeah. And and you could you could say, well, you know, this whole very this concept of idolization is, you know, a, a, a fundamental tool or aspect of patriarchy in the first place. And, you know, the very reason uh, that we have those sort of those sort of dreams or fantasies of of great individuals by which we often mean great men is a part of the problem. And you'd be right. Right. That's absolutely the case. Um, but there was and there remains, you know, a very strong drive uh, to, to reconcile various kinds of, of masculinity, especially especially in America, which is largely the, you know, the cultural context we're talking about that, that then exports that to the world. And um, it's absolutely the case that, you know, the role of the kind of weird, messed up uh, role of men our bad fantasies uh, for ourselves and and those we surround ourselves with is it, it it hasn't been overcome. We haven't made much progress uh, wrestling with it, and I think one of the reasons you know this is a little bit of a left turn from you know uh, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, but one of the reasons you see a struggle in ordinary online life around masculinity is because we haven't resolved it. And I'm thinking here of like you know. Uh, 4chan or redditors or you know uh, Jordan Peterson followers or whatever who are all looking for a place to find uh, a certain stable sense of self and often of male self of masculine self in the wake of all of these power brokers you know and it's been interesting over the past 20 years uh, teaching at universities teaching in technical disciplines in universities as the rise of the technical, uh, you know, the tech industry has been progressing during that period uh, to see the dreams and anxieties evolve and maybe maybe to see how little they've really, <laughs> they've really uh, hmm. evolved, you know. Um, you know, the, the, my classes are still largely composed of, of men. Maybe there are more women in them. The kinds of dreams uh, that are set for these students are defined by largely men and a certain kind of men in power, um, either at VCs or in tech companies. And and even when you say, well, you know, let's let's encourage uh, a women or, or people of color or other sorts of underrepresented individuals to get in, you know, to find a foothold in this new economy. It's usually on the terms set by those uh, who are in power. And you often hear all these stories of, you know, how many fewer black-run uh, startups or women-run startups, to use just that example, uh, get funding or get support? And all of that, you know, it comes from sort of the same basis of a, a, a certain understanding of what kind of success you have to have already had in order to pursue more of it. So we have to take a break. I, I, I still have a lot of questions. Um, we're talking to Ian Bogost about nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and whether nerds have become the bad guys in, in the narrative story of our society. Um, this is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. We will be back in just a moment. And we're back. I'm Celeste Headley. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. And we're talking about nerds. Once upon a time... There was a kid who was picked on in school because 
he liked computers too much. And then he left school and he started working really hard on his computer. And then he created a software that everyone needed and he made tons and tons and tons of money and he became super cool. And then he started ruining the planet and, and he became the bad guy. I, I, I'm not talking about any particular person. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, certain... it's an archetype, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. That's the archetype. Um. But to a certain extent, one of the reasons why anybody cares about nerds is because technology has become so ubiquitous in our society that many of these tech nerds are able to force themselves to be in the center of our viewfinders. <laughs> like Elon, I don't really think anybody would care about Elon Musk. I don't think anyone would give a good god damn about him if he would stop buying up companies that forced him his name and his picture to be all over our social media feeds, frankly. I, I mean, that is truly what I believe. And so to a certain extent, I, I feel like one of the reasons nerds, and I, I'm using that term broadly, are even given as much attention as they are are even the protagonists in any way, either as villains or heroes, is because they're making themselves that. They're putting themselves in the in the center of attention. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no there's no question that the the the, the people who get attention get more uh, attention, and we devote uh, our attention to them, um, not necessarily because we want to, but because they're in the limelight. But there, there was a, a sort of um, you know very particular kind of archetype around the ideal nerdly figure you know and and musk is an interesting test case for it because he seems to have kind of entered that archetype successfully and then and then departed it again at some point like you remember when everyone compared musk to to tony stark the you know the fictional yes. billionaire playboy industrialist um, behind from, iron man behind yeah. iron man right and that that's an you know that's a fictional character let's let's put that out there um, but it was a fictional character uh, around whom uh, we believe there was sort of uh, collectively believe there was enough balance of of interests and abilities that we could tolerate and even aspire toward that that sort of station. Right now, it may have been totally wrong, but it was a it was a comparison that was used. Um, being wealthy, being a savvy, being able to speak in public, um, being a that, that the, the playboy figure, this sort of you know good with women was always very important to it. Uh, but someone who could make things and, and invent stuff, that was a sort of ideal uh, position uh, in, a, in a certain way. And wh whether or not Musk ever achieved that station is kind of irrelevant. It's more interesting that we stopped talking about him in that way and why was that. And, you know, some of the reason is that the aspiration was wrong in the first place. Like, <laughs> is Tony Stark really the, the dream you want to hold for, for yourself uh, or, or your children uh, or your friends, well, well, no, it's a comic book, literally a comic book, you know, character. And also, you know, he's not even the most likable comic. Not likable, <laughs> you know, but um, but you know, but we 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 held it out there as something that maybe it would be a structure around which we could we could build these sorts of uh, of fantasies. But then at the same time, as people uh, get more and more wealthy, more and more powerful, especially within the weird a uh, bubble of 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 tech Silicon Valley style life they become more and more disconnected uh, from uh, the ordinary world, of course. And, you know, which is not to say that Stark 
as a fictional character was ever terribly connected to it. But the, uh, the sort of strange actions and questions and, and, and assumptions that someone like Musk now makes um, are assumptions for himself. And they feel, you know, more and more kind of out of line with many people's uh, uh, lived experience. He's, you know, bought Twitter and sort of has been like redesigning it as a personal playground for his own wants and needs, which I guess is the prerogative of, of the very wealthy in some He's way. also anti-Semitic and... There's all sorts of problems, and... right? Like there, it's, there's no end to the problems. Um, but w- what we never really developed, I think, for these figures was a, a, a sophisticated, well-built-out archetype that was achievable. Like what do you really want out of your, your magnates? You want them to be... Um, a humanitarian or uh, you know not to be philistines to be connected to to see the the different perspectives and positions uh, of of you know varied people from different walks of life and if we go back and look at, at the precedents uh, of the very wealthy like you know bill gates for example who who never left the orbit of nerddom uh, but entered through his foundation and the way that he does um, philanthropy a similar, if if distinctive, kind of way of of exerting power, in which he appears to be giving away all his wealth, but but only to his own foundation, which decides what's worth investing in um, and not. Right? Is that better? Is that a better model? Maybe so. Right? But if the problem at the end of the day is just wealth, just the accrual of all of this wealth and the power that comes uh, that comes from it, which is, by the way. I think it's a scale of wealth that we never could have imagined when we were when we were fantasizing about the reconciliation um, or, or the you know the overturning of the jock nerd uh, a, a paradigm. It doesn't really matter. There's always going to be a problem so long as as one person or or a small cabal of them can be so decoupled from ordinary life and ordinary experience, they can just no longer see it clearly. You know, this is all again. I I hate to bring this back to my femaleness, but you know this is so difficult for me, for me, Ian, because I I don't understand what it's like to to grow up male, and this whole paradigm of having to learn how to be a man, mm-hmm. right? Are are you going to be a jock? Are you going to be a nerd? Like that is so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I don't even understand why we have to teach people how to be a man. Like none of my female relatives ever came to me and said, "Celeste, I'm now going to teach you how to be a woman." <laughs> like I don't you know, nobody ever couched any of my uh, any of their advice to me in like be a woman, Celeste. <laughs> P- pick up that frying pan like the, all of what you're talking about feels to me as a society as sort of male angst over what the male identity is is this wrong am i am i maybe i'm speaking out of a deeply you know maybe this is my wokeness coming out i don't know i, 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 I mean i don't sure, even but, think it, it's not even wokeness right i mean what you're saying is it, i don't think it even rises to the level of some sort of uh controversy it's just absolutely uh, the case that we, you know, we continue to play out this sort of weird, unresolved anxiety of uh, of masculine identity um, in America and in the world, and and it persists. It persists despite the fact that there are all manner of kind of you know different incursions into that identity, different ways of 
uh, of experimenting with gender and sexual identity. And nevertheless, here we are, you know, still rehearsing uh, these very old fashioned ideas. In a way, this is an odd episode of Hear Me Out, because normally I bring people on and we disagree in a civil and smart way without yelling at each other and without insulting each other. Instead, I read your piece. I've read it now several times um, because it came out a while ago and I had to refresh my memory. And right. instead, I've sort of brought you on and I'm trying to have you help me grapple. Yeah with what we're talking about here, because I cannot get my mind fully around what this is. What is going on here? Why is this so difficult? And you're right. When we went back, as I was preparing for this uh, conversation, this whole discussion about the villainy of nerds began, I saw the first um, op-ed, and there may have been some coming out before this, but I saw the first one come out in like 2004. I mean, I'm sure you could trace them back 100 years. You know, I'm it, it, sure. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, come on, Thomas Jefferson. Talk about a villainous nerd. But like, for me, I, I'm just trying to sort of understand what's happening here. And and you're talking in your piece about the declared fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Right, that was I don't know if that's happening. Well, as far as we know, it's not now. And it doesn't really matter whether it did, did or didn't happen or it was or wasn't going to happen. What was important was that they were having discourse around it. And it could have. Um, like, I'm going to fight you, right? That that was a, that was a way of conversing uh, between these, you know, unfathomably wealthy individuals that was how children. they chose to, to talk about right that was how they chose to talk about their differences in public and i uh, and i paid about as much attention to it and i had as much care for that as i did when i was on the playground i was like oh some teacher is gonna have to come running out at some point like that has nothing to do with me i could not care less like i it has nothing to do with me i couldn't care less right mm -hmm. like i i don't care and yet these are people who have a outsized impact on policy, on politics, on economics. Like, I cannot, <laughs> I, in some ways, I, it, I find it deeply unjust. Let me throw out a couple mix-ins here, just a couple okay. observations okay. that I think surround this whole discourse. One of them is uh, the way that we have sort of infantilized uh, a culture or, or attained a certain connection to childhood uh, dreams. And I was thinking about this. So one of the things that Musk did a while back that I thought was relevant for, for the, the, the role that we're talking about, he was like, I'm going to make these, these flamethrowers um, or flamethrower-like devices. I think it was the boring you know, company. He was trying to raise money for his tunnel digging apparatuses. It's like, we're going to make flamethrowers, oh, and you're, I'm going to sell these flames. Remember this? Except he's not an engineer. He can't make stuff. Well, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even really matter because the whole, the whole thing around it was this kind of, you know, G.I. Joe-like fantasy world. You know, we're going to have, we're going to dig tunnels underground, and instead of having trains, Tesla cars will, will drive on these, on these tunnels or the Hyperloop or the, the flamethrower itself. Like, these were all, you know, like fantasies that a middle schooler would sketch in a, in a loose leaf notebook and then forget about and outgrow. But once you get enough power and wealth, if you haven't outgrown them, then returning to them, that is a new idea. And it, you don't need to go to billionaires uh, to find it. All of the pop culture from my childhood, Star Wars, Transformers, all, all of that stuff. Uh, and it's not just the male gendered stuff too. We've now returned to it 
it was, we were supposed to be done with that and outgrow it and move on to to adult affairs, right? Those those were children's right. media, uh, but we've persisted at them. We returned to them, and and in fact, we spend a great deal of time and money collectively on these uh, these franchises that are that are now considered to be universal. I mean, the rise of Marvel, the rise of Star Wars, all of that also contributes. It's not, it's not not just about the the nerd thing, right? Although there was a certain nerddom in in those toys and movies at the time. Um, but rather the sense that uh, we wanted to persist an experience of childhood and, and reclaim it in adulthood. That, that's, that's something that has been happening and continues uh, to happen. Maybe it's not fueling uh, the fire, um, but it is contributing to this, this sort of ongoing perspective. Another thing that I would throw out there is the, the way that fame and identity and power and, and wealth uh, have been made newly possible, the kinds of new types of wealth and power that the internet tools that, that folks uh, like Zuckerberg and others have invented, where they bear fruit, uh, where you can take advantage of them. So I'm, I'm thinking here in part of the rise of like the, the influencer economy, you know, which is, is largely feminized in, in a way, right? Like the, the sort of Kylie Jenner, uh, Kardashian, post-socialite attitude of, well, what fame means and what, what young people, especially young women, uh, see as desirable about fame is very much attached to, to these very amplified notions of traditional uh, female beauty or power. Like that's just contributing to all of the same patriarchal attitudes that we were just speaking about from another direction. So we have multiple forces that are reinforcing these stereotypes. It's not just that that Musk is a is a kind of weird nerd uh, with a bunch of money. I mean, he is a weird nerd with a bunch of money. He is that. We have, to, yeah. we have to take one more break. We will be back in just a moment to talk more about weird nerds, nerds with a bunch of money. I'm Celeste Headley, uh, and we will be back in a moment. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley, and with me is Ian Bogost. And one more time, we're going to be talking about weird nerds. And and I got to ask about jocks, mm-hmm. um, because and I wonder what you make of the argument that uh, Jennifer Wright made. We talked a little bit about her op-ed that she wrote in 2018, that which was called Jocks Rule, Nerds Drool. Now, she not only brought up the argument that nerds have become the bad guys. She also also argued on the other side that at least in broader society, when it comes to the pow- powerful and wealthy, more and more, the jocks are becoming good guys. Um, she mentioned LeBron James and all the charitable work that he does. Uh, Steph Curry. Um, I'm trying to think of this. Colin That's Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick, right. right. Um, I think she also mentioned Terry Crews and his work for those who have been sexually harassed and assaulted. What do you make of that particular argument? So a controversial position to take on the, the, the sort of, you know, good guy jock is that uh, it is a reaction to the declining power of physical, physical power, culturally speaking, right? That, uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to like psychologize why Terry Crews or, or Colin Kaepernick do or don't do anything, but it's interesting that it arises at the same time as the, the rise of the nerds, right? Uh, you know, so many of these athletes are, at least in America, are either NBA players or NFL uh, football players. And we, you know, we've seen a decline of, of commitment 
uh, to sport in general, but to, to American football in particular, largely because of uh, what we know now about brain injuries uh, are wrought uh, by that sport in particular, not just among the, the pro players. So, you know, underneath, underneath all this is an interesting and complicated uh, decline or shift of, uh, of sport and our attitude about sport, even as sport remains enormously, enormously powerful. So that's something that's something that's under underneath this. Um, I think to take a political uh, or a social position as an athlete isn't new, uh, but it's new that we recognize it as a pattern. This sort of change or our perception that that there's a change now that there's this sort of you know socially active athlete. It comes alongside the understanding that there's enormous amounts of wealth uh, that that can accrue to the uh, to the to the most popular and most successful athletes that they then have to figure out what to do with uh, as a result. Uh, but also that sport is a, a social practice. It, that we didn't give sport uh, just due uh, in a way. We, we treated it as something that was extra social, that was outside of concerns of uh, a broader kind of social fabric when it never really was like that. And, and I think here about a slightly different fantasy that we've had for, for 100 or more years about like the sound mind in this in the sound body that this this idea that that an education or an upbringing ought to be both physical and mental that you need the two together and that they have to act in concert with one another and that and that they also counterbalance uh, each other I, I say it's a fantasy because the best way as I argued in the in the Atlantic piece the the best way to be both sound of, of mind and of body is just to be wealthy in the first place so you can afford to be. But, but nevertheless, that, that idea that, uh, that you are a physical human being uh, living in a body in the world, that's something that the nerds uh, or the, the, the nerd culture always wanted to overcome and jock culture never did. So, so maybe the athletes are a little closer to that sense of, of, of the balance between ideas and being a physical actor in the actual material world. So this may be perhaps where we begin to disagree here because I find that... Um, although we can point to a whole bunch of, of ultra wealthy nerds who are jerks, um, a they're definitely the I mean they represent a tiny sliver of what's basically a large population. Like um, you know, there's a lot of people employed in the tech sector who would most likely be classified as nerds, and then. There are a lot of people um, who are wealthy nerds who are doing good stuff for the world. I mean, sure. say what you will about Bill Gates, but, you know, he is giving away <laughs> a lot of money to try to solve real world, world problems. Um, just in, I mean, some of my favorite charities receive a lot of money from things like Microsoft and from other companies as well. Um, the Microsoft philanthropies give away tens of millions of dollars. And there are individual philanthropies among the, the tech companies that aren't doing evil, not to, to paraphrase the original Google motto, and are not, you know, threatening to punch each other out and measure the size of their genitalia and all those other things. I mean, maybe we're just talking about, a, I, I hate to say this, but a few bad nerd apples? Certainly we are talking about a few bad apples, but they're they're like really, really big apples. Um, 
the gravitational <laughs> pull uh, of, of their presence uh, and and the the drives and the aspirations that they define. Like these are these are important. The individuals we hold as cultural heroes they serve as these beacons uh, for what people think is is valuable and worthwhile, and they structure our uh, our dreams in a real way. And you know, there's always been ups and downs, and you know, anytime you find a hero, there's you know later you're disappointed by them. That's sort of sort of part yeah. of the discovery of, of heroism is the discovery of um, the fallibility of, of the human character, which, which is delightful and important to also recognize. Um, but the archetypes themselves are maybe part of the problem, that we were hunting for these sort of like, like molten cores um, of archetypes that were invented before us and that we, in, that we inherited. There are good nerds and bad nerds and good jocks and bad jocks, but even talking about goodness and badness uh, may lead us uh, astray. Even philanthropy, like we don't want to measure people simply in terms of the amount of wealth that they accrue and then give away into structures where they determine who is worthy, right, of receiving uh, aid, which is just as true of, of LeBron James and Steph Curry as it is of Bill Gates, even though the, the scale uh, of the money may be different, right? So uh, perhaps part of the problem is uh, this, this sort of, you know, capitalist obsession with the accrual of wealth as the gate to cultural relevance, uh, and then the uh, the performance, the sort of public performance of, of what you do with that wealth uh, and that power as a test of your virtue. Uh, and if we could shed ourselves of that, all of that, whether it's jocks or nerds, we'd, we'd probably be better off. Fair enough. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Okay, so this conversation was a, a lot. Like it was a lot for me. You probably literally heard the gears turning in my head. And I, I wonder if it was a lot for you also to sort of grapple with. I would love to hear your thoughts on this about why we still have this dichotomy of nerds versus jocks, um, whether nerds are the bad guys now. I want to hear your opinion and you can share your opinion with us easily. Just email us. It's hear me out at Slate.com. A few weeks ago, we had Professor Bill Connell on the show to argue that Columbus Day was, and still is, an important holiday. That conversation got a little fiery, and it got you fired up as well. So before we go, we want to share a note we got from a listener who called themselves Sentient Being. Sentient Being wrote in part... You basically destroyed the guests everyone was doing it argument and his it was 500 years ago argument. One of, if not the main legacy that Columbus brought to the world was that kindness and acceptance gets you killed. Because that's exactly what happened. As true history is slowly being revealed, it seems that one group seems to be responsible for the vast majority of death and suffering in the world is celebrating that what we really want to do. I don't think so, sentient being, and I think uh, that question was rhetorical. Thank you for your email. We really appreciate it. We appreciate hearing from all of you, so keep sending those emails. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by the sentient Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley, and until next time, I want you to speak your mind, but I also want you to keep it open. Mm-hmm.